Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were dealing with the sign of Jesus walking on the water. And if you look back at the previous video, you understand why I called it a sign. And that was simply because it was a sign to Jesus's apostles, his disciples specifically, as Mark said to us, because their hearts were hardened and they did not understand what Jesus was saying about himself through the sign of the loaves. So what we were looking at in John six, we saw Jesus feeding of the 5,000 men, two fish, five loaves. And this was a sign to the people as John, that is the writer of the gospel of John. As John includes this specific miracle in his gospel, it speaks to one of the signs that Jesus was performing to say that he is God. Remember, as we do work through the gospel of John, John is using these miracles, these signs. He's recording these particular signs to say about Jesus that he is more than a man because he does the things that only God can do. That's why John chose out the particular signs in his gospel. But nevertheless, so what we see is in the sign of the bread, the people, remember now, we want to, let's rehash it a little bit. Jesus involved his disciples very much so in this particular miracle. Remember the questioning of Philip and Andrew about how we're going to feed all of these people and using the disciples to direct the people and things of that nature. So he involved them uh, very much so as it was an outward sign, that is a public miracle for all of the people. This was not done in secrecy. This was not done indoors. This was done outside in a mountainous area. And so the idea it is a public sign that both his disciples as well as the people were able to see. But the problem was neither the people properly perceived the uh, significance and the true meaning of the sign, nor Jesus's disciples. The people did not perceive the whole idea of it in that it speaks to Jesus divine person. It is more than just simply saying the Lord will provide for you. And that's the problem that the people uh, understood. They were thinking in order to, because they were seeking to make Jesus king. They were thinking how Jesus could solve all of their problems, deliver them from the Romans, uh, provide for men who became sick or for food and substance and things of that nature to break the, uh, the power of the Romans over them. But they were not understanding the necessity of the coming one to give his life that coming one also who is to be God, who is God, as John's gospel is always telling us about. Remember, that's the very idea, the point of John's gospel. But so the people did not properly understand the sign, but neither did Jesus' own disciples understand the sign. So what happened? Jesus gave his own disciples another sign, and that is he did something unusual. Instead of him remaining with his disciples, he sent them away to the other side, knowing everything that would befall them, the wind and the waves that he would come in the night, walking on the water. And what did Matthew's gospel tell us? Matthew says that once they received Jesus into the boat, they began to worship him, something that you do not do for 
a man. And what was the words that Matthew recorded from the disciples? You certainly are God's son. That is, in using the title God's son, same idea of the son of God, they were using the divine title. So the disciples were beginning to understand of Jesus's divine nature. And whenever we say divine nature, it is simply to say that he is God. So this is what we have in the early parts, or should I even say the first half of John chapter six, the issues that developed from Jesus performing the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 men. Now, as we continue in our study of John, we're going to deal with the people coming to look for Jesus again the following day after that. And in that whole section, we will it will be a lot of theology involved. And I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. To tell the truth, it is kind of heavy theology. So, of course, we will not be able to finish all of John here, but we're going to simply deal with the next section. Uh, that deals with the people's uh, re-encountering Jesus on the other side. And in all of that heavy theology, we're going to have to do something I don't like to do a lot, uh, but we're going to bring in the Greek text because to really get the understanding, the punch power of what John is trying to say, we have to analyze the Greek text. So we're going to do that today. But don't worry about it because, you know, probably no doubt very few of you guys read Greek. I don't speak it as well as I can read it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're going to deal with that text to underline some of the high points that uh, John is trying to make in these heavily theological sections that we're about to deal with. OK, so enough of that. And let's just continue on in our study in John verse number 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Okay, now this is pretty easy here. So what do we have? We are still dealing with the instance of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and some of those men uh, of the crowd, some of those people, they were looking for Jesus. So what happened? Remember, Jesus sent his disciples on the boat over onto the other side to cross the Sea of Tiberias, also sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus sent his disciples over early. And we know later on what Jesus himself came walking on the waters, got into the boat and they landed. And remember, they ended up in Bethsaida. That's once you cross the Sea of, Tib of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. You go into a place, Bethsaida, all right? But the ultimate destination of Jesus was not Bethsaida, but Capernaum. So when the people got into the boats to get on the other side looking for Jesus, they did not find him in Bethsaida, but they went on later to find him in 
Capernaum, which was the ultimate destination of Jesus. And always remember, Capernaum was one of the bases of operation. It's where Jesus centered his ministry. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. The base of operation for Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. And he did a number of miraculous things there. But the idea, the people ended up going to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And that's important because it sets the very basis for our study in the text. And we're going to develop that uh, as we work through the text. And I, and, I, and I am really fighting right now not to get into that, but just simply to wait. So I'm going to wait. But they were looking for Jesus. But remember now, the whole idea is Jesus just did the miracle of the loaves and the people wanted to make him king. Jesus did not allow himself to be made king, sent the people away, sent the disciples away. But still they were seeking Jesus. OK, so once they found him on the other side, that is in Capernaum, they asked him a simple question. Lord or rabbi, which literally means teacher, when did you get there? So really, they began to engage in somewhat of a small talk as they were as they found Jesus. And in the next section, we're going to see Jesus not entering into any small talk whatsoever. He's going to get directly to the point. And as he gets to this particular point, that's when we get into this great theological discussion that we're going to see in the remainder of this section. OK, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him. The father God has set his seal. Okay, so now let's talk about this. Now, as we move through our study here, what I'm going to do is because we're going to see it back and forth between Jesus and the people. People say something, Jesus say something. So I'm going to deal with each of these issues as we move through them the words of the people and the words of Jesus. So where we just stopped at was this. Uh, uh, making up conversation with Jesus. That is, Rabbi, when did you get here? Small talk. And Jesus began to say, as verse 26 says to us, truly, truly. Now, always take note whenever you see Jesus say, amen, amen. That is truly, truly. Because here, Jesus is emphasizing something. And what he is trying to emphasize, he is trying to get the people to really consider understand and focus their attention on. So what is Jesus trying to get them to really focus on? Motivation. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So notice you are here seeking me, not because you saw the signs. You see, you got to understand how Jesus himself is giving a, a, a understanding to this. Jesus is saying that the feeding of the 5,000 was more than simply trying to feed hungry people. The feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the 5,000 was a sign. 
What is the sign? The sign that speaks to who I am, the sign that speaks to what is my purpose, how you should understand me. The sign, number one, let's just break it down. The sign that speaks to what? Number one, by the feeding of the 5,000 from two fish, five loaves, such a magnificent number of people. And we notice these are just 5,000 men, not, even, not including women and children. Easily a number, easily over 10,000 people from such a small amount. Only God can do these things. You don't understand my person. Number two, you don't understand my mission. That is, he is also the Messiah, the Christ. And that's the problem. The people were not understanding through the things that he was doing, who he was. They were totally disregarding his message of who he claimed to be. For Jesus was claiming to be both God and Messiah. And the people were not receiving this claim. You understand that? So what is Jesus saying? You saw the signs that do what? That attest to my claims. But you don't believe that. You don't believe that. The reason you are here now. Truly, truly. The reason you are here now is because you want me to feed you again. You ate the loaves and were filled. You want to eat again. You want me to simply prov to provide for your carnal needs. You want me to provide for your tangible needs. You want me to provide for your temporary needs. And that's the issue with Jesus. And that became negative in the mind of the Lord. Excuse me, God. That became a negative thing to Jesus. And of course, it is a very negative thing to simply seek Jesus for the things that he can provide that is in this world in this life and not seeking Jesus for the higher things, the greater things, the things of the spiritual life. And that is the problem that we have even today. And that's the, and if I had to stop here and do some preaching, I would say that is a major problem that we are having in the church today. That is a major problem when that we have with the presentation of the gospel today. That is when people teach, when people preach, they say unto you the things that Jesus can provide, the bread. They say to you, Jesus can provide for a house. He can help you pay your bills. He can touch your body if you're sick. All of these things are tangible things. All of these things are not true reasons to seek Jesus for and for this reason, Jesus, like he did for those people at that time, would do for us. He would frown on the presentation of the gospel that we have from so many so-called preachers and teachers. That's why I hate this foolishness of prosperity about what Jesus can give you. It is not we do not seek Jesus for the things that he gives us. And sometimes, let me, let me give me some, it, it annoys me sometimes when I'm driving down the street and I see a car, most likely it's a, it's a, a, a luxury type vehicle. And on the back of the tag, I see blessed. 
What are you trying to say? Are you saying to me that you are blessed of the Lord because you have a luxury car because of the things that he can give you? Are you seeking him for the bread that perishes? Because I promise you one day that car is going to wear out. These are things that are only temporal temporary things or are you seeking him because he gives you eternal life seeking him because he gives you peace with God seeking him because he is the only one who can deliver your soul from judgment and damnation or are you seeking Jesus for the things that he can do what happens what happens if he decides not in his wisdom, not to give you those things. Are you disappointed? Do you turn your back from God? Do you now disbelieve the scriptures? You must seek him for the right reason. And it is never for things. We, those who have truly been saved and enlightened by the spirit of truth, do not seek Jesus for the things that he can give us. We seek him for who he is and what he alone has provided. And okay, 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 okay. Stop, 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 stop. That's why I knew this section would end up being long. So let me just stop there. But what's the point? Let's go back to the text and exegesis of the text. So Jesus is saying, your motivation is wrong. You are seeking me simply for what I can give you. And in that context, bread, you want me to feed you again. And so he begins to admonish them and says, do not work for the food that perishes. Now, I like that. OK, calming down again. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to the uh, uh, all of this section because it'll get really, really, really too long. But we're going to find out and I'm going to try to stay calm. One of the operative words that we find in verse number 27, and it, this is one of those theologically important, this very loaded, this very loaded word, work, ergosiste, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Okay, let's just break it down. Number one, do not work. All right. Theologically important because Jesus, Jesus is now beginning to transition them. Think about it. Just like in chapter, what is chapter four? When Jesus met the woman at the well, her mind was set on earthly things. Her mind, remember the water? She came seeking water. And Jesus said, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask him to give you water. But the woman's mind was so set on the tangible things of the world. She kept asking, she kept saying, well, you don't have anything to draw with. The well is deep. How are you going to get the, because she was stuck in the tangible. So what did Jesus do? Jesus had to move her from the tangible to the spiritual, from the natural to the spiritual. And that's when he said, go call your husband. And then he said, you've had five husbands. So the whole point is he had to move her from the natural to the spiritual because she was not understanding him, what he was trying to do, what he was trying to say. In the same way, what do we have? We have these Jews here who do not understand what Jesus is trying to do and what he's trying to say, who are stuck 
in the natural and he has to move them into the spiritual. So what does he say in order to move them? Do not work for the bread that perishes for the food that perishes. Okay. So he's trying to move them from what, from that, which comes to an end, the natural thing in this life, but that which goes to what eternal life, the spiritual. So he's moving them with this particular statement, but the theological word of great importance is work and why? Okay. I'm making a lot of assumptions. Let me explain it to you. Because we are now beginning to deal with the issue of salvation. That is, what is it that brings salvation? And this is the discussion that we are about to have immediately about to have here. The work that brings salvation. Now, Already in your mind, you should be thinking, if, if you have an understanding of the scripture, you should be understanding what? We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what we believe. Now, I'm going to talk about that. I was premature. I shouldn't have gotten into it right then. But this should already be in your mind because of the presence of the word work. Because what does work state? Work states that it is on the basis of something you do. So what is Jesus? What is the work that Jesus is, is telling them to do in order to be saved? So that's what we're going to hash out. But let me go back here, deal with the verse. So he tells them once again, don't work for the food that perishes. Get your mind off of eating food with your mouth. Because in the end, both the food perishes and your body that consumes this food, your body, that is your physical body, will likewise perish. So bring that into the understanding. But at the same time, keep in mind that theological word work. Then he says, instead of working, instead of seeking me. To provide food to put in your mouth for right now. To Boy, I want to preach again. Let me leave it alone. <laughs> food to put into your mouth. Seek me for that which I give that gives you eternal life. Seek the food which endures to eternal life. You got it? Seek me not for the temporary sustenance of life. Seek me not for the temporary things in this life, but seek me with your mind set on heaven itself for eternal life. What can Jesus give that grants unto us life eternal? Not this temporary life, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, but life eternal. And then notice what he says. Such a food the Son of Man will give unto you. Notice the title that Jesus uses for himself. He uses the title Son of Man. Remember, I keep telling you all throughout, you have to be aware of the different titles of Jesus, especially when he uses them because he is re referring to himself in a specific manner. Remember the two titles, Son of God. When he says son of God, he is referring to himself 
from the perspective that he is God, son of man. He is referring to himself from the perspective of his humanity. And here, by Jesus using the title son of man, he refers to himself from humanity that is his. Okay. And in, and in using that title, all he is saying is as a human being, he is able to offer up his life on the cross to deal with the judgment of God to satisfy our sins. So the son of man, Jesus teaching here, how does he give life? Oh, it's so beautiful. And I want to keep, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting to be premature. But by the title son of man, it is his body that will be given for us. That's why later on in this particular chapter, Jesus will say his body is bread. And unless you take his body and eat of his body and drink of his blood, you have no life. Now, Jesus is not going to talk about the actual, literal eating of his body, but he's speaking in the spiritual sense. Faith in what Jesus has done. What did he do? He offered up his body on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And that bread and that consuming and that believing in that grants life. So, premature again and backing it all the way up. The son of man title. So why does Jesus give this particular title? Because he speaks of his humanity. He speaks of having a body as God. He cannot die. Son of God as man, son of man. He has a body that can die. And this body provides is the means of providing eternal life to all who believe you got it. But now then now let's deal with the second part for on him. The father, even God has set his seal. Now the whole idea of set his seal is to bear approval of to bear approval of. So what is Jesus saying? Now let's bring this whole idea together. Don't work. Don't work for the food which perishes. Okay. Don't come looking for me for food. Don't work, but look for me for the food that gives you eternal life, life eternal. The food that you are looking for only leads unto death. It's here today, gone tomorrow, and so is your flesh, your physical body. But look for me for the food that I give. And we understand that spiritually, that food, as Jesus would tell us at the end of this chapter, is literally his body on the cross and faith in that because what faith in what the son of man, what Jesus will do with that body faith in that. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the dead. This, this, which the son of man gives grants to you eternal life. Now you Work. Remember, they said, yeah, do not work. You work for that. But the idea is work, work, work means that which you do. But notice what he just said on whom the son of man, the father has set his seal. The father has set his approval. 
This is the way and this is the plan of the father. What is the plan of the father? That the son of man, that Jesus should have a body and that this body should be sacrificed for sin. And God has set both the, this plan and God has set his approval, his acceptance of this plan dealing with Jesus. And, okay. This is the work. I, I, I love it. I love it. So Jesus tells them the work unto salvation, the work unto salvation, because what you are doing, the work you are doing, that is seeking me for natural bread does not give eternal life. It perishes. That bread perishes. Your physical body perishes. But do this work. What work? Believe in the son of man. Believe in what the son of man will accomplish. Remember, son of man, body. What is Jesus going to do with that body? Die on the cross. Believe in that and it renders eternal life. But notice the work. What is that work? Because that's the theology that we're dealing with here. And it's so important. It is the very basis of our faith. What is that work? That work that I'm telling you to do, says Jesus, satisfies. It is obedient. It is obedient to the plan of God. God sets his seal on this work. But here's the point. It is it's the gravitas of the point. The work that God has set his seal, that God has set as a plan, that God approves is not the work that you do. That's what you need to see. This work is not the work that you do. It is the work that the son of man do. How do you know this? Because on him, the son of man, God has set his seal. It is approved. It is not therefore the work you do, but the work that Jesus does. And notice we have to remember all of theology. Jesus says, don't work for stuff that perishes. Operative word, work. But Jesus moves them into the spiritual. But work, work for what? Work but on that Food that endures to eternal life. So look to the things that give you eternal life. He said, okay, and where is the origin? Where does that come from? The son of man. The son of man does these things. And we already know the reason why he calls himself son of man. Body that were down the cross. What about this work that the son of man does? It is the work that the father has set his seal on him, what Jesus does. And this will be even further developed as we move through the text. Okay. I hope you guys understood that. And I hope I explained it well, but in simplistic form, Jesus simply saying, don't come to me looking for what I can give you food because in the end it 
perishes and your body that you're trying to satisfy the food with will perish. But come to me seeking for eternal life because only I can give you these things and the manner in which I give it to you, God approves of that. Okay, now let's go on. Verse number 28. As we develop that particular theology, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do? See, I like I want to hoop. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Je Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, OK, now notice. Since Jesus has now moved their mind to this idea of the work of God, they are asking, well, then, OK, fine. What must we do now? You have to remember and you have to take in all of the theological importance of these statements that John is trying to make and understand is salvific underpinning. That's what I wanted to say. But how it pertains to salvation. Because remember, Jesus has already moved their minds from the natural and the temporal. Remember, temporal means things that exist in this life alone, in this world alone, and it comes to an end. Jesus has already moved their minds from the temporal and natural to the spiritual and the eternal. So they're focused that that's what Jesus is trying to do. And so he's trying to focus them there, even though they ain't there yet. But that's what Jesus is trying to do. So they're on their way. So they begin to ask the question in that vein that Jesus was saying about the work. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, now notice something here. Here's what I want to try to say. Two things here. What shall we do? You got it? Remember, we are dealing with the issue. Remember, that which the Son of God, the Son of Man gives produces eternal life. That's the issue of salvation. Okay? Now, bring alongside that idea of what we are entertaining now. Works. Works. And remember, the whole idea of works is the things that you do. The things that you do. Or the... That's the idea here. So what shall we do? Now notice something. It is now bringing in the idea of works associated with the individual. What shall we do? And don't lose out the context of salvation of God because eternal life. Notice the works of God, that which pins to what? Eternal life, because that's the context of what Jesus is talking about or simply the issue of salvation. So they're saying John is saying, even though they're not understanding it properly, what shall we do? What shall we do to do the works of God? Now, notice the response of Jesus. Number one, before we get into Jesus response, they said so that we may work the works of God. Now that is so beautifully important. Some implying. Okay. 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 I want to do the things that are pleasing to God implying such things that I do will be acceptable to God. 
implying such things that I do. Let's go to the context again. Such things that I do yield to my salvation. Contribute in some way. Contribute some way to my salvation so that I might have eternal life. Now let's look at Jesus' response. But remember how they used the word in the plural so that, number one, we, something that they did, and then another thing, works in the plural. Now, Jesus responds, verse number 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work. Now, notice Jesus speaks in the singular. They were thinking by the plural, the things that they could do to satisfy God in some way. Jesus says, this is the work of God in the singular sense. What? That you believe in him whom he has sent. And I got to calm down. I got to stay calm because I can't teach and be too excited. But notice what Jesus is saying. It's not there is nothing that you can do to be acceptable to God. What, what work work? What are the works that we may do? The people ask. Jesus said, there is no works that you can do to be acceptable to God. There are no things that you can do. You see, I've heard a lot of times people say, how, how do I know that I've been changed or how do I know that I'm going to heaven? How do I know that I'm going to see God in peace? And I've heard people respond and simply say, the things that I used to do, I don't do no more. The places that I used to go, I don't go no more. In other words, they're saying, when I used to lie, I don't lie anymore. And when I used to steal, I don't steal anymore. And backbite and false witness and, 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 and fornicate and all of these type of things. And this is why I know that I'm all right with God. You are not all right with God whatsoever. And that is the very vein of Jesus teaching right here. There is no work that we can do to be acceptable to God. It is not. And that's the very principle, the very foundation of our salvation. We Ephesians two and eight for by grace, you have been saved, not of works not by what you do. It is the gift of God. And what is the gift of God? The son of man sending his son into the world. Jesus death on the cross. He died for while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It is the gift of God, not by what we do. Jesus is correcting them. John is giving us the foundation of our theology that there is nothing we can do in order to be saved. What is it that the father approves of? What is it from the mouth of Jesus said that the work that we do that makes us acceptable to the father? Notice what 29 say this in the singular, the work. In the singular, the only thing that we can do this singular, the work singular that you believe in him whom God has sent. This is the foundation of our faith. What saves a man or a woman? What saves him? Faith in Jesus 
alone. We are never saved by our actions. We are only, and notice what I said, exclusively, only singularly saved by faith in Jesus and his person, his work. What did Paul say in Romans 8? For if Romans 10, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Jesus, his person, that he is God sent from heaven, Jesus in his work, that he died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead. What did Paul say? You will be saved. Salvation comes when an individual believes on the work of Jesus alone. How we live the line, not line, the not stealing and all of the rest of it. How we live is simply a response to our salvation. How we live is simply evidence that truly we have been saved. So what have we done? We have now laid a great theological point from the mouth of the Lord. I don't care from the mouth of the Lord, from the mouth of Paul, I don't care who, as long as it is in scripture, it is a great theological point of salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in the person and the works of Jesus. And that's the point that Jesus just said. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Can we go just a little bit further? So now Jesus, Jesus is talking about, uh, 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 he's correcting them on the works of God, uh, uh, per se salvation per se, that which is pleasing and acceptable to God. And he has already said the father has set his seal. The father has set his seal, his approval, not on what you do, but on the son, on the son, for on the son, the father has set his seal. The only thing that is acceptable to God is that which the son does. And that will be what he's giving his life for our sins. But now let's just simply continue. So, and we're going to see that the people still like the woman at the well, they still not thinking spiritually, they still stuck, but nevertheless, Let's continue in their unbelief. So they said to him in verse number 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread, bread out of heaven to eat. Okay. So once again, they still don't believe and they're asking Jesus for a sign. Now, what you have to remember is the very gall of the question, the very gall of the desire of the people asking Jesus for a sign. Back up the time clock. Go back to the previous day when Jesus just fed over 10,000 people. That was enough sign itself. And still they are asking for another sign. That's what I said. Miracles will just simply, simply miracles alone does not bring people to faith. It, ha it has to be something done in the heart by God alone. Okay, but anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But they still ask him for a sign that we may believe what you are saying, what you are saying about yourself and the things that you are attesting to. Show us 
a sign that says what you're saying to us is the truth. So they say, well, what work do you perform? Well, do something, Jesus. If what you're saying to us is true, do a sign from heaven, do a miracle. And then they use as an example, because they're hard, their motives for coming to Jesus has not changed. Their hearts have not changed. Why did they come to Jesus? Jesus said himself when they came to him with a bunch of small talk. Lord, when did you get here? He said, I tell you the truth. You're not seeking me because you saw the sign that spoke to who I am and the things that I'm saying. You are seeking me because you want to eat again. You're seeking me to, to bless your carnal life, to give you tangible things. And let me say it again, because every time I get there, I want to preach. If you are doing that, stop it. It is wrong. It is improper. And it does not speak unto salvation. Yes, God will provide for all your needs through his riches and glory. But don't seek him for those reasons. God will do what he says. God is faithful. You don't have to worry about God doing what he says. The problem is always you doing what you're supposed to do. We doing what we're supposed to. That's the eternal problem. But anyway, moving on. So what do they say? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. So they're reflecting back to what is Exodus chapter 17, I believe it is, when God fed them with bread that came from the heavens. And this is not the heaven of God. This is the sky above. And that's what they're not understanding. And I hope you understood when I said that this is not the abode of God, that heaven. This is the heavens of the atmosphere. That's where that bread came from. And Jesus is going to make the distinction between the bread that comes down, the true bread that comes down from the heaven of God and the bread that fell in the atmosphere, from the atmosphere. And this is what they're reflecting to. And they're trying to say, notice they're saying, do the bread thing again. Moses did the bread thing as a work. You do the bread thing. He just did the bread thing again. What are the people trapped in? They are trapped in their carnal desires. They are trapped in their fleshly desire. Feed me, Jesus. Give me, Jesus. Do this for me, Jesus. And not seeking the bread that yields life eternal. Notice what it said. Back. Ate manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread out of heaven. 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now, that's fat and we definitely need to unpack it. Let's give a shot at it. So Jesus corrects them and notice the emphasis True, I told you, always watch truly, truly. It is Jesus speaking in the emphatic. They're thinking Moses gave them God divine, some sort of a divine bread. Jesus said, no, he didn't. <laughs> no, Moses did not give you such a bread. Truly, truly, Moses, who has given you the bread, he did not give you that divine bread that comes literally out of heaven. But now, 
I'm not going to get into the Greek yet, but here the but is a strong transition, okay? It is a strong transition to say, no, that was not the bread, but what? Notice, notice what he says. It is my father who gives you the bread, out, true bread out of heaven. Notice he says, my father. Remember earlier again when Jesus healed, healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and he called God his own father. It was a declaration that he is God. Remember, we just dealt with that not long ago. Go back and look at the study that we did. What was it? Matthew chapter five. And Jesus healed the man. Once he healed the man, calling God my father, the people got angry. Why? They said because Jesus was making himself equal with God. He was calling himself God. So here, once again, notice what Jesus is declaring about himself. He is divine. He is God. And notice also what he called himself earlier, son of man, that he is also human who has a function as a son of man to give that body to voluntarily Jesus voluntarily gives his body as a sacrifice for sin. Notice again, no man, Jesus says, take my life. I give it. I voluntarily lay it down. And if I can lay it down, I can take it back up again, rise from the dead. But anyway, we're not getting into that. So Jesus emphasizes verse number 32, what Moses did not give bread. That bread didn't come down from the heaven of God, but what God himself, God himself, notice God himself. What did John the Baptist call Jesus? The lamb that God gives. Okay. And I don't want to get into, I keep doing that because what all of this speaks to Exodus chapter 12. The lamb, the Passover lamb. But what did God say to Moses? Tell the people to take a lamb. And from that point on, when they would celebrate the Passover, the people uh, would choose out a lamb for the Passover that was to deal with the sacrifice of sin. But anyway, but what did John the Baptist say? Oh, this is not a lamb that the people chose. Jesus is a lamb that God chose, making Jesus the perfect lamb. But anyway, that's not where we're supposed to be. My father gives you the true bread. So because now notice Jesus now applies the idea, the symbolism of bread to himself. What is bread? Bread is the sustenance that gives life in the same way that bread, food, bread gives sustenance to physical life in the natural Jesus is now making the application that he is the bread sustenance that gives bread, not to physical life, but to eternal life. And such a bread only the father gives. Jesus is simply stating he is the one who comes down, not out of the heavens of the atmosphere to provide bread so that the people can eat the miracle of Moses, he is the one that the father has sent from heaven, the abode of God itself, that in consuming of him, you may have eternal life. He is the true bread that comes down. So Jesus gives that right and proper application to himself that gives not natural life, but what eternal life in this is done of the father. All right. 
Moving on a little bit more. And this is done again, John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world. And this bread gives life to the world. 34. Then they said to Jesus, Lord, always give us this bread. I'm almost getting hot when I read that, but give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So now look at that response that Jesus is talking about the bread. Lord, give us always give us this bread. They're messed up. <laughs> They're not thinking about eternal life. And Jesus keeps telling them the bread of life is the son of man. Jesus keeps trying to tell them it's me. It's faith in me, faith in who I am, faith in what I accomplish on your behalf. That is the death on the cross. They just don't get it. And the people are saying, always give us this bread. They're still wanting Jesus to provide physical bread for their physical bodies. And so they're saying to Jesus, oh, that sounds so good to me. Keep on feeding us, Lord. Keep on giving us this bread. And guess what? We don't have to go to work. We don't have to do this. We don't have to sow. We don't have to harvest. We What the world? And so Jesus responds back in the emphatic. Get your mind off of food. It is not the food I have been talking about. It is me. I am the bread of life. I'm that bread. And it's all about belief. And I'm, I'm, I'm just bringing it all out. Belief in me. Faith in me. Consuming me. As he was talk about later on in this chapter. But let's dissect verse number 35. We have another one of those ego amen. That is I am. And if you haven't understood that uh, in this video, but look at the previous videos that I did in Jesus statements concerning the I am referencing back to what Exodus three and 14 Isaiah chapter 41. One of those statements where Jesus identifies himself as God. OK, so again, what do we have here in chapter six? An identification of we just read it. Son of man as human identification. The whole th theme and thesis of John identifying himself as God. I am. I am. But notice the context here as God, the one who gives life. I am the bread of life. So therefore, I am that food that you can eat that will give you Life. Now, we know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, spiritually. He's not literally talking about the physical consuming of his body as bread, but he's talking about the issue of faith, that which satisfies. Remember, the whole idea of bread is what? That which satisfies a man. I am the bread of life. And then he says what? The one who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes because see, that's the whole idea. He who believes in me never thirsts. So he's saying that such a one is eternally satisfied with hunger and thirst. That is the absence of it. All he's doing here. And we can understand this as a reflection back to Matthew chapter five. Blessed is he who hungers. Blessed is he who 
who thirsts, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Now, so let me just take time to deal with that. Who hungers and thirsts after righteousness? Because what? Here in John, he says, the one coming to him never hungers, never thirsts ever again. To hunger and thirst simply means you recognize a void in your life, a spiritual void. You recognize sin in you. You recognize something's wrong with me. I want to have a relationship with God. I want to have peace with God. Oh, my God. I want to have a settled mind. No, okay, listen to what I'm saying, guys. I want to have a settled mind. Settled mind. I am all right with God. I have peace with God. At the end of this life, when I die, I have no doubt I will be with God. There is no hunger. There is no thirsting because why? No, no, let me say, if you come to me, you never hunger again. You never thirst again. Why? Believing in Jesus settles it once and for all. Romans chapter, what is it? Chapter five. Now we are having peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus feels our hunger forever. Why? Because the righteousness that we seek, being in a right position with God, the Father, that righteousness that we seek is settled once and for all. You will never hunger. You will never thirst again when you believe in Jesus because you understand that he fulfills these things for you. He is the bread that gives life. And then later on in John, I believe it's in chapter seven, he is the water that gives life. He, if you come to him, you never thirst because what he has done on the cross satisfies on him. The father has set his seal. What Jesus does meets the approval of the father. And if you believe in him, it satisfies hunger. It satisfies thirst. You never have to doubt. You never have to wonder about your salvation. And this Okay, I'm halfway preaching, but I'm trying to teach too. This is that wonderful, and I know I'm not here, but just let me say it. This is that wonderful theology that is stated in Paul when Paul says, in Christ, in Christ. It speaks of the position of the believer because the believer has faith in Christ Jesus. That when you say faith in Christ Jesus, who he is, God, Messiah, what he has done, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. Because of your faith in, because of your faith in Jesus, you are now positionally 
in Christ. That is, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord, my God, and my Savior. Therefore, what Jesus has done when he went to that cross and died for my sins, positionally, my status in the presence of God, when God looks at me because I am in Christ, my position, he sees no sin. Remember, no sin can stand in the presence of God. But guess what? You know, I know that from time to time we sin for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when he used that word fallen short, it is in the Greek present tense. That means they didn't just fall short before their sin, before they got saved, they fall short. We even now, we continue to fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ Jesus, our position, our status before God is sinless. Why? We are in Christ. So all that is in Christ, all that Christ has done for us applies to us. So it's like in a sense, imagine when God sees us, he not simply sees us, he sees his son for this is the seal. This is the plan that God approves, that God himself designed. Because if God looked at us for us, he would see sin. He would see so many shortcomings. That's why Paul constantly uses that phraseology in Christ, because we have a certain status as believers in Jesus. We are Perfect. We are without sin in Jesus. And that's what we mean by positional status. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Notice he says, never hunger, never thirst. That means, let's take it back again to John, even the application of Matthew. Something's wrong with me. I know I'm not right with God. I want to be right with God. And let's bring in the theology of works. But I can't please him by me. I understand all of my sinful imperfection. I understand what? All of my sinful imperfection. And because I have so many sinful imperfection, I fail God again and again and again and again. And I'm praying. What did Jesus say? When you pray, ask God to forgive you. He didn't, this is not the prayer. This is not the prayer of one coming to God. Okay. I, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I almost opened up a can of worms. I'll have to make a separate video about that. So don't even look for me to talk about it. But the prayer, what some people call the Lord's prayer, we understand it's the disciples prayer. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is not a prayer of forgiveness so that one might be saved. This is a prayer for those who, who are already saved. Remember, what did the disciples say? Lord, teach us how to pray. These are not men who are not saved, who are not already having faith in Jesus. They do. They do. But notice what Jesus said in that prayer. Forgive us for our sins. So therefore, as believers, we must constantly 
pray for forgiveness. Why? Because we sinned. But notice what Jesus says here. No hunger, no thirsting. Even though we may sin, this is the point, so get it. Even though we may sin, I am still, I am still positionally in Christ Jesus. Okay, you know what? It would be improper for me to bring in this much theology and not explain it. Because I can't leave, in other words, I can't leave you hanging on that. I need to explain it. But let me just first deal with the point. Never hunger, never thirst. Okay, that's what Jesus says. Coming to him because he is that bread that satisfies eternally. There is never any concern about whether or not you meet God's expectation. You got it? Because having faith in the finished work of Jesus, having faith in him alone, it removes all hunger and thirst. You never have to worry about meeting God's standard of righteousness because that's the whole idea. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after what? Righteousness. You never have to worry about meeting God's standard of righteousness because Jesus has met it for you. And once you put your faith in Jesus, you never have to worry about that at all. Heaven is your home, period. Make no doubt about it. And as we work through the text, we're going to talk about that even more. Now, let's deal with the point of what I just said about the prayers. When Jesus said, I, I just said to you, the disciples prayer. This is not a prayer of those who are trying to get saved, but this is a prayer of those who have already been saved. Number one, I've already given you one point. Jesus's disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, when you pray. So therefore it's the disciples prayer. It's not Jesus prayer because number one, Jesus never sinned. So he has no sin to ask for forgiveness for. But it is a prayer for those who have already been saved. That's number one. And number two, let me bring this in alongside, alongside of this. That's why you need to understand 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, notice John said the we, that means he included himself. John, the apostle writing this epistle is already saved. So this is not if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. This is not a directive for uh, the prayer of a prayer to salvation. Okay. Let me say this. This is not a prayer for salvation. That's what I'm trying to say. This is once again, just like what I've been telling you previously, this is a believer's prayer. This is a prayer for one who has already been saved. So when John, 1 John, says, if we, including himself, confess the sins, this is not a prayer to get saved. This is a prayer for the restoration of fellowship. Okay. Well, I didn't intend to go this route, but let me finish it. So what are you saying? 
as God's children, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the principle of eternal security. Stay with me as we work through this text. As a matter of fact, the very next passages, the very next passages, as we work through this, you're going to find out as a believer, there is absolutely, that's what Paul said, neither height nor death, things present, things to come, principality, powers, nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. Eternal security. Once a person has set his faith in the saving work of Jesus, this is salvation. That salvation can never be taken away. That salvation can never be lost. Once a person is truly saved, your salvation is eternally secure. That's why, once again, notice all of this beautiful theology here. He who comes to me never hungers ever again, never thirsts ever again. Why? I have done the things that secure his salvation. You don't have to worry about the works of God by doing that which is acceptable to, the, to God. Why? For the work that I'm telling you is a singular work. The work that I'm telling you to do to be acceptable to God, to take away all your worries, believe in him whom God has sent. Faith in me alone. It satisfies the requirements of God to see him in peace. So what's going on in the disciples prayer when we pray for the repentance of sin, when we repent of our sins? What's going on? And when John says to confess our sins, it is to reestablish fellowship. Sin, even with the believer, breaks and injures the fellowship with God. Notice I use the term fellowship, not relationship. Relationship means where we are with the Father as to paternity. The Bible calls us the children of God. We are God's children. The relationship is never affected. It is always unaffected. You never hunger. You never thirst when you have faith in Jesus. Relationship is never affected, but the fellowship is affected by sin. Let me give you an example in the earthless. Fellowship means, uh, you should understand that our spiritual getting along with God not our position. That's why I brought into you this guy, all of this talk about our position in Christ. We are sons of God because we believe in, we are in Christ Jesus. We believe in who he is and what he has done. Okay. But the fellowship can be and is affected by God, affected by how we live sin, the presence of sin. Here's the example. Imagine you are a parent with children, with a child or children, whatever you want to call them. But let's just do a single child. You're a parent with a child. Now, guess what? You had that child. That child is yours. Good, bad, up, down, no matter what, that child is your child. Okay? Now, Imagine this, 
Imagine how fellowship, remember the whole idea of fellowship, the sense of getting along. Imagine how your fellowship with your own child is when the child is a good child, when the child is an obedient child. Imagine how you get along with that child. It's good. It's pleasant. No problems. Everything's wonderful, right? You talk with the child. You communicate well with the child. Things are in sync with the child. It's just wonderful. All in all with the child when the child is a good, respectful, and obedient child. Now, imagine how things are with the child when the child is difficult, is stubborn, rebellious, disobedient. You don't talk well with the child. You don't get along well with the child. And things don't communicate well with the child. Your fellowship with the child. As a matter of fact, sometimes you may not even want to see the child. But guess what? It's never changed. He still remains your child. And that's the beauty of the Christian relationship with God. You see, the repentance of sin, and I've already said it, and, and I, okay, let, I'm going to end this video uh, in this point because we're going long, but I want you to get it so you don't get too upset because a lot of people say, what, what, what? First of all, what have we been teaching this whole point come from the mouth of Jesus? We move from the natural to the spiritual, from the looking for bread to satisfy the body to looking for bread that comes from God that brings eternal life, the spiritual, that gives eternal life. And what did Jesus say? That bread that gives eternal life is what? Him. And what? The Father set his seal, approval, upon not what they do, the works that they do, but the seal on the Son, upon the works that he would do. So therefore, the work, singular, to receive such eternal life is Faith in the Son alone. So let me help you out because let me just talk to you because I know you've heard it many times. I have seen it. I have experienced it. And, and it's just false teaching that takes place in the church. When people come to Jesus, when people come to Jesus, they say, I want to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And you hear this totally unbiblical, unbiblical formula that people give, you need to repent of your sins. That is incorrect. That is an assumption. Notice what I just said. It is an assumption involved, but to be saved, you will not find anywhere in the new Testament where it teaches you in order to be saved, you need to repent of your sins. It's not in the Bible. Notice what Jesus is talking about eternal life. What gives a man eternal life? Notice Jesus did not bring in the concept of repenting from sin at all. He only stuck with faith in him. There is an assumption of sins, but he stuck with faith in him. Again, let's go back to what I just said about Paul. Let's look at it again. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. Do what? Believe in your heart. What? God raised him from the dead. All about Jesus. All about Jesus. What? What is the end result? You will be saved. Now, what did Paul just say? Repent of your sin. Say, God, I'm sorry for lying. But let me just go back. 
It's wrong and it is doctrinally incorrect to think that in order to be saved, you repent of your sins. In order for a man to be saved, anybody to be saved. When I say man, I'm just using it in the general, general sense. In order to be saved, you must believe that Jesus is God. That's, that's what you see always in the gospel. That's what you see. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. If you go into the book of Acts, okay, watch this. What prevents me, the eunuch Acts, from being baptized? Philip responds to him, if you believe, if you believe. Notice, he didn't say if you repent of your sins. He said, if you believe the things that I've been saying to you, Isaiah 53, about Jesus, how he died for our sins. Do you believe that? But anyway, this is what it takes to be saved. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Now, the assumption concerning sin. I believe he is also a human being. He was given a body in order to what? Die for my sins. So that's when sin comes in. I believe you're first of all, if you're believing this, you have to first believe you have sinned. You have to also believe you are a sinner. Hunger and thirst hunger and thirst. You believe this about yourself. And so Jesus is given a body in order to satisfy the judgment of God. He died for my sin, but nevertheless, he was resurrected from the dead. Resurrection means the granting of new life, spiritual life, eternal life. But the point is, what does it take to be saved? I believe in Jesus, in his person as God, in his person as a man dying for my sin and resurrecting from the dead. This is what it, what is required to be saved. It has nothing to do, nothing to do saying I'm sorry for my sins. It's implied because Jesus had to go to the cross and die. That's implied in your belief in Jesus going to the cross, but it's not about say these words, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. What does it take to be saved? I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the son of God coming from heaven. I believe he came in a body. He died for my sin. He rose from the dead. Romans chapter 10. Now I'm saved. Okay. Being found saved. Romans 7 and 8. Basically, I believe it's chapter 8. <laughs> Being found saved, 6, 7, and 8. Take that whole corpus of teaching. How do we respond? Do we sin, continue in sin, so that grace may abound? God forbid. So therefore, we now live. Now let us respond to God's saving grace to us. Let us respond to what Jesus has done for us and live a godly life. But guess what? From time to time, we do sin. And now here comes kicking in the prayer of the disciples. From time to time, all of us sin. So Jesus says to us who have been saved, Jesus says to us who have put our faith in him, when you pray, say, forgive us our sin. 
This maintains fellowship with God. And so John, first John says to us, we need to confess these sins so that we can continue in fellowship with God. Because guess what? That disobedient child, rebellious child or whatever, who is still your child. But once that child says, mama, I'm sorry for how I've been acting. Daddy, I'm sorry for what I have done. Forgive me. That child now has a more amicable, pleasing relationship. You get along better. Things are better. But the whole point of that human human example that I gave to you was this. He or she never stopped being your child. And the point that I'm trying to say is, the point that I'm trying to say is, we are never saved by what we do. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. And Jesus's final point was, and once you come to me, you don't have to worry about meeting the requirements of God unto salvation. You don't have to worry about God's approval because God has set his approval, his seal upon me and what I have done and believing in me, you never hunger and you never thirst again. Your relationship with the father is set. You are okay with God and all the rest of that stuff that I was trying to say about the sin issue is sin for the believer irritates, aggravates and disturbs that relationship or should I say, I'm sorry, that fellowship with God. The relationship remains unchanged. Okay. And I'll talk about that even more so. Now, you may be having difficulty. Oh, so right now, I'm going to stop. Okay, we're done. That may have troubled you. You say, no, you, what are you trying to say to me? You can't, you, 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 you just sin and whatever. Trust me, as we get into the next section, which I thought I was going to deal with today, foolish me, but as we get into the next section, we're going to open up our Greek and we are going to investigate that next section thoroughly. And we're going to deal with some of these issues and principles of things that I call eternal security. Eternal security, I've heard it in a crass way. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, principally correct, but that's a harsh way of saying it. But I'm not going to get into all of the nuances of that and the arguments of that because this video is not about that. But nevertheless, our eternal sec our security is made sure and unbreakable in Christ Jesus. Let me tell y'all something. If I die, I believe in Jesus. I certainly do. And if I die, heaven is my home. Now, Jesus will judge me according to the works that I have done, whether they be good or bad. But my eternal salvation is secure. I am going to be with the Lord. That is what eternal security means. And this is a gift of God to those who believe in Jesus. Again, that's what Jesus meant by you don't have to worry about it. meeting the mark. You don't have to worry about meeting God's approval, hungering and thirst. Never again will you do that. Just come to me. Just believe in me and I'll make it sure for you. But anyway, stopping there because I keep going on and on. This is such a beautiful text. Guys, thank you for joining me in this text. 
There is so much that can be said. And I would encourage you to even listen to this video, long as it is, I know, but listen to this video and plow through the text. Plow through the text. I know we have certain thoughts and we have certain feelings and presuppositions that we bring to the text. You have to be willing to lay them aside and let God's word speak for itself because we only have a surety, not in our feelings, not in our thoughts. We only have a surety in the word of God. So no doubt some of you guys probably have some difficulties. Some of you guys probably have some enlightenment in these things, but stay with the text, stay with the context of the text and it'll all be, it'll all be all right. God, will, if you truly desire to know the truth, God will show you the truth. But join me next time in our continuing study, John chapter six, we're still gonna be dealing with the theme of salvation. Salvation as it has to do with the work of Jesus, what Jesus himself has done. And by faith in Jesus and his work alone, you have salvation, even eternal security. You don't have to ever, ever, once you put your faith in Jesus, worry about losing your salvation or the issue of what I heard some people call it, backsliding. It's not biblical. But we'll talk about all of that in the next video. But anyway, God bless you. Thank you for joining me. And as always, if you can say, if God has touched your heart through these videos and your soul and your mind have been enlightened, consider, I'm asking you to support this ministry so that we can continue to bring you these lessons. There is always in the description a link that can show you how you can support me. And for those of you who have done so, allow me to say thank you, God bless you, and I truly appreciate all that you have done. All right, enough for today. Thanks guys, God bless you, and we'll see you on the next video.